Everyone is talking about inflation. We've not heard inflation talked this much since really the, the 1970s. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival, Earth Day. This planet is threatened with destruction and we who live in it with death. The very uncertainty of the hostages' condition creates a situation in which President Carter's warning of last week looms larger with each passing day. We are facing a horrible example of international terrorism, the holding of innocent people as kidnap victims. There was Cold War I, and now we are in Cold War II. Today we're going to discuss a number of striking parallels between the 1970s and today. Higher inflation, supply chain disruptions, geopolitical tensions, social unrest and protests, including on college campuses like we see currently, cultural upheaval, war in the Middle East, technological changes, apocalyptic forecasts, a cold war, and lastly, monetary regime change. History does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme, and that was Mark Twain. As we begin these parallels, taking a look at that period from 1966 to 82, the thing that really stands out in which I think has surprised Wall Street as well as the Fed is the return of inflation. So our point was when I wrote that article in March of 2020, get ready for inflation, my thesis was the 40-year cycle of disinflation was over. And we saw that last year where the inflation rate peaked last summer, I think it was like 9.2%. And if you look at the way we measure inflation, we deliberately understated, does anybody really believe that the true rate of inflation now is 3.8%? What the government does when they compute the inflation index, they do substitution. If a ribeye steak is gone up 10, 15%, well, they'll substitute hamburger. If hamburger goes up 10%, you know, I don't know what they put in, tofu. Then they have something called hedonics. Let's say a new Ford F50 is up 10% at $75,000, but they'll go in and say, well, it has better tires, it has a better stereo system, so we need to subtract from the price increase and back out these new added features that you get in the car. And so by the time they get done with it, instead of a 10% price increase, it gets down to make 2 or 3%. So they artificially lower the rate of inflation. And where this all began, if we go back, it really begins in 1971, August of that year, Nixon decouples gold from the dollar. And what happened is we had this Bretton Woods system where the dollar would be backed by gold and currencies would be pegged to the dollar. Well, what happened is with the Great Society programs in the Vietnam War, the U.S. began running deficits. Foreigners began cashing out their gold. And so Nixon decoupled that. They said it was temporary, but of course it was permanent. And that allowed the deficit spending and what you're seeing it culminate today. And we'll get into the implications of this. But that's where you could see inflation begin to pick up. Now, when money is created, you need to understand it goes three places. It can go into the economy. It can go into the financial markets, which is what happened last decade, or it can go into savings or in your mattress. In the 70s, when money was created, our financial markets 
were not as developed as they are today. I mean, the number of mutual funds. I can remember, Chris, the number of mutual funds was like a quarter of page of the Wall Street Journal. Now you've got ETFs that do anything, any kind of asset class uh, they have an ETF for. So the money went into the economy. So what is inflation? More money creating fewer goods and services. And we'll get back to how that played out in starting in 21 and 22. So the inflation began there. And then we went into a disinflationary period, beginning with Paul Volcker, where he drove interest rates. At one time, the prime rate was 21%. And Volcker killed inflation. And that's what we got used to. We got used to a 40-year period of lower inflation rates. And then in the last decade, with QE, QT, or the number of QEs that we had, we had interest rates down to the lowest point in over 5,000 years of human history. Uh, many of you can recall at one point, I think it was in 2020, or maybe it was 2019, T-bill rates here were negative. At one point, there was $17 trillion in government bonds globally that had a negative interest rate. So in other words, you paid the government to loan them money. And so now the financial markets are more developed. There's more places and outlets. But what really changed, and this is what I picked up on, is why I said inflation was returning. The difference this time is you had monetary policy coupled with fiscal policy. The government was actually taking dollars and sending checks to everyone, stimulus checks, business stimulus checks. And at the same time, if you recall, during the the lockdowns, they were shutting down supply. So they were shutting down the economy at the same time, giving people more money to spend. And so it was this combination of fiscal policy combined with monetary policy that created inflation. We were pushing more money into the economy. And I, quite honestly, I've never seen anything like this. Let me put this into perspective for you. In 2018, the, de- the total debt of the U.S. government was $21 trillion. Today, the total debt is $33.7 trillion. If you go back to where the Fed was back then, the Fed had a balance sheet of 3.7, let's call it three and three quarters of a trillion dollars. By April of 22, the Fed's balance sheet increased almost $9 trillion. So if you take a look at the increase in deficit spending and the increase of money creation, the government with the Fed injected $18 trillion of money into the system. It, wasn't, it didn't take a genius to figure out inflation was coming. And now we are hyper-accelerating. It took us 92 days to go from $32 trillion to $33 trillion, which we reached on September 19th. It has taken us 30 days to add $700 billion. So in other words, the next trillion dollars will be added in 60 days, and the trillion after that will probably be 45 days. So this new, we're in a new era of what I call fiscal dominance. And right now, we are going to be increasing the national debt at two to three, four, five trillion a year. Because if we take a look at 
where the government spends money. Medicare is $1.5 trillion. Social Security is $1.4 trillion. Defense is over $800 billion. Interest is $900 billion versus $4.4 trillion in revenue. There's basically, after you take entitlements, there's no money left to run the government. So if you take a look at, we spent for fiscal year 2023, we are now in fiscal year 2024. The government's fiscal year begins in October. The budget last year, we spent $6.1 trillion and we took in $4.4 trillion in revenue. So we had about a $2 trillion deficit. For 2024, mandatory spending is $4.2 trillion against we hope we'll get $4.4 trillion, but we're following declining tax revenues, and that tells you more about what's going on in the economy. And $1.6 trillion in discretionary spending. Now, that does not include, like the supplemental spending bill that Biden wants for, I think, $106 billion for pork projects, for Israel, for Ukraine. Where are we getting the money? We don't have the money. If we're going to give Ukraine... A hundred billion dollars or whatever we're going to give them, that's all going to be done with borrowed money. So we are now on a runaway freight train of spending that is going to lead to a major dollar devaluation. I want to tell a story that had a profound impact on me early on in my career. I moved to San Diego in 82 and I was starting my financial planning practice here. Back then, you got to remember, Volcker had raised the prime rate to 21%. You could get 18% in a money market fund. You were getting 15 16% in CDs. You could have got over 15% in treasuries. And I could remember I gave a seminar, and I had a potential client go in, and he was talking about putting CDs in Mexico because you could get 30% on a Mexican CD in a Mexican bank. So, I mean, why get 18% when you can get 30%? Imagine if you had a million dollars and you were getting 30%. You'd be getting $300,000 a year in interest. Well, what happened? A new president came in. The economy was out of whack. And he devalued the peso overnight by 50%. Those people that had $100,000 jumbo CDs in Mexico lost half their money when they translated that money back into dollars from pesos. And what I think you're going to see, the debt is going to get so big here in the next three to four years, the only way they're going to get out of this is going to, they're going to devalue the currency. Overnight, you could lose half of your net worth and purchasing power, just like Roosevelt did in 1933 when he confiscated gold, gave everybody $20.67 an ounce, and when he got all the gold, he revalued gold at $35 an ounce. Immediately, in one month, he ended deflation. And beginning in March of 33, we began an upward climb of inflation that went all the way to 1937 when the Fed made another strategic mistake and they, they started jacking up interest rates and, of course, kept us in a depression until World War II. But that's where we're heading ultimately because the debt is escalating now. And the other thing that's happening, we have $5 trillion of debt that's rolling over this year. We have another $5 trillion that's rolling over next year. And what the government did is not what you and I did. When we saw mortgage rates at 3%, we refinanced our home. 
we locked in lower interest rates. What did corporations do? They refinanced their debt. They locked in lower interest rates. What the government did was stupid. They kept everything short-term because they were only paying like one-tenth of a percent on T-bills. So they kept everything short-term, which kept the deficit down, even though we were adding trillions of dollars in new debt. Now it's a comeuppance because now that debt's going to be rolled over. It's not going to be rolled over at a half a percent, one percent. It's going to be rolled over at four and five percent. So that's why next year you're going to see over a trillion dollars in interest expense, which will represent almost 20 percent of government's tax revenues. So inflation is here 40 years later, and it's going to get worse. Tell us about some of the supply chain disruptions that we did see during the 1970s and how they parallel to today. Yeah, I would say the two uh, big supply chain disruptions in the 70s were related to oil. The 1973 uh, Yom Kippur War, where OPEC embargoed the U.S., uh, we started having gas lines. And I, I was a little bit prescient at the time as I saw gas prices going up. Remember, when I was in high school mowing lawns, I was paying 25 cents for a gallon of gasoline. I, I can remember going to the store for my dad, getting a six-pack of Pepsi, a pack of cigarettes, and a gallon of gasoline. I did that for a dollar. <laughs> I think you probably could barely buy chewing gum with that today. So we had the supply disruptions in 73, and then we had the Iranian Revolution in 1979, another supply disruption. And thank God, Chris, back then I was driving a uh, Volkswagen VW, so you know I got good gas mileage. And I lived one street over from the gas line. And I think back then it was even an odd numbers on your license plate where you could get gas. And so I knew the gas trucks came in 1130 at night. So I just went over the next street and I got my gas. So I always had gasoline in my car. But that was the big supply crisis. Fast forward to where we are now. Take a look at the last 34 years. We went to globalization. Companies started outsourcing their manufacturing, and they gave gave rise to what Gav Cal calls the platform company. The marketing and engineering would be done in the U.S., think of Apple, but the manufacturing would be done overseas. So China became the manufacturing hub, and we saw that hit us hard during the lockdowns. When China was locked down, there was a shortage of everything from chips to you know pharmaceuticals. Another factor that came in for efficiency was just-in-time inventory. So we had these software programs that companies would use that would barely keep enough inventory because it cost money to hold inventory. And the increased complexity of businesses that have outsourced more of their manufacturing and distribution. You can't believe all the components and different things that go into an iPhone that are made in different countries, the raw materials from different countries. And so we saw this come home to roost during COVID, where we had everything from chip shortages to raw materials. And what is the U.S. doing now? The U.S., the chips bill, we're trying to bring manufacturing of chips back here. Trump started it. You know, America first, bring companies back here. We have to start making stuff here. And that was a result of these supply chains. So it was oil in terms of the 70s. And it's more outsourcing and making China manufacturing hub for so many things, including green materials, that came home to roost during COVID. 
And now we're waking up to this fact. We can't, you know, the military can't depend on Russia for uranium or the Chinese for computer chips for the missiles. It's not going to work. And so now these supply chain disruptions are going to be changing as we reindustrialize in the United States. Yeah, and again, you know, those supply chain disruptions that we saw in the 1970s in multiple different waves, they were primarily concentrated with oil. And of course, oil being the lifeblood of the global economy in the 70s. That's still true today. But what we see now is semiconductors, for example, and critical materials playing a much larger role. Some would argue even that uh, data is really the most critical input uh, in our information age. But uh, again, the supply chain disruptions that we see today, unlike the 70s, have widened beyond just energy to a much wider array of materials. And semiconductors are, are probably the, the main focus. But that relates to the third parallel that we're going to discuss today, and that's with rising geopolitical tensions. In the 70s, you had a lot of geopolitical tensions. You had some in South America. You had, uh, especially with some turnovers of dictators in that area, you had it in the Middle East. And of course, you had the Cold War with the Russians. Fast forward today, you've got a Russian-Ukraine war. You've got U.S.-China competition. You have tensions in the Middle East, which we're seeing right now. We have also tensions in Asia, in the South China Seas, potential uh China invasion of Taiwan. We're also seeing the rise of nationalism, not only here in the U.S., but also in Europe. And then we're also seeing the spread of disinformation. One of the best examples was the uh, rocket that hit the uh, hospital. Uh, Israel was blamed. It turned out it was Hamas that did it. And then also you're seeing the growth of new technologies when it comes to weapons. They've uh, The Russians and the Chinese are ahead of the U.S. right now. We're scrambling to catch up. Supersonic weapons. I'm talking about missiles and torpedoes that are so fast, they travel at supersonic speeds. So we're seeing advances, and you just think of AI, and you think of uh, what we're seeing, for example, the U.S. came up with the Iron Dome, which has been, thank goodness, has been able to defend Israel from all the rocket attacks and so we're advancing military hardware and technology. And the latest, the U.S. is working on a super sub. When I think it goes into commission uh, right around the end of the decade, it will be the stealthiest, most deadly submarine ever built in human history. So we're advancing in these technologies. And, of course, if you've got supersonic weapons, you've got a strong military, you're able to do things. And that's creating tensions and especially in what I see us moving, as many of our guests on the program have talked about, a more multipolar world instead of a unipolar world. Yeah, and that's something that uh, Peter Zion and a number of other guests have spoken with on our show. The fourth parallel that we're looking at, again, here between now and the 1970s is social unrest. And, uh, you know, for those that didn't live during the 70s, perhaps they're not aware of some of those things. I would imagine many of our listeners are. But, I mean, we saw a large number of protests, particularly on college campuses. And it's just amazing, you know, when we think about the protests that are taking place in cities throughout the U.S. right now, on college campuses, uh, in Europe, 
I mean, throughout the world. So tell us a little bit about some of the parallels that we see in terms of social and political unrest. Well, if you go back to the 60s, this 1963 Civil Rights March with uh, Martin Luther King in Washington, uh, 1965 here in L.A., the Watts riots, 68, the protest on college campuses, the Stonewall protest in 1970. You had radical groups like the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground. Fast forward to today, you've got BLM, Antifa, you've got Occupy Wall Street, you've got the Me Too movement. And as you just mentioned, Chris, just take a look at the social unrest right now. Uh, the rallies in the street, pro-Hamas, pro-Palestine. And then also the social unrest today is probably, I would say, that distinguishes a little bit different than the 60s and 70s. It's more global. It's a reaction to radical environmentalism imposed by governments. You see a backlash now running through Europe because it's driving the cost of energy. I mean, we live in California. We have the highest gasoline prices in the country. We have the highest utility prices in the country, all related directly to California's environmental policies. There's also a wider range of issues today when it comes to social unrest, whether it's climate change, whether it's racial justice, economic inequality, or gender quality. So there are more issues here that is creating the social unrest. And it's being fed also, Chris, I would say by technology with social media. Yeah, definitely. Millions and millions of people now getting their uh, history and information about all sorts of events in 10, 15 second sound bites. And that's not very conducive to understanding context, nuance, all sorts of things which are necessary, I would say, for critical thinking and assessing situations properly. Uh, but we're not getting a lot of that into today's environment. So that uh, just supercharges, I would say, emotionalism, protests fueled by misinformation and a lot of events that are taking place currently. One of the major striking parallels, and this is the fifth one that we're going to point to, has to do with Middle Eastern war. So we did see that in the 1970s. And we see that, of course, today. I don't know if many people know this, but it's almost exactly 50 years from what we saw in the 1970s. So this is a, this is a really significant parallel. Yeah, the Yom Kippur War began in October of 1973. Fast forward 50 years later, the Hamas War began in October of this year. 50 years and another war. So, and, and this is a war, some are saying, that can escalate if Iran or Syria or Turkey gets involved. So this is another striking parallel, including the very month it started. Right. And in addition to that, another thing that uh, we should point out that's eerily similar between what we saw in the 70s and now is we also saw a hostage crisis. Now, this hostage crisis took place in Iran. This was under Carter. But today, again, we see another hostage crisis. And this is a major hostage crisis. It's international in scope. Most of the hostages are Israeli this time, but there are American hostages as well. So that's another striking parallel you see 50 years after the 70s, again, happening right now. Yeah, I think there's like 23, 25 American hostages, the 30, that they keep updating these numbers. But, uh, you know, the other thing that I think I, I want to come back here just for a second here on social media, because one of the things that we have today that we didn't have, let's say, 50 years ago 
everybody has their cell phone. So if something happens, uh, a shooting, a, some criminal activity or something horrific, there are people with their cell phones recording this. So we get this immediately. I don't, Chris, I don't spend time on social media. I've got better things to do. But, you know, a lot of my friends send me these funny videos on Instagram and I can't watch them. So my granddaughter <laughs> installed Instagram on my phone. Now I'm getting more stuff that I don't have the time to even look at. All of a sudden, I'm being flooded with this stuff. But that's something that we have today that we didn't have 50 years ago. I mean, if a news item happened 50 years ago, you'd turn on the evening news, watch Walter Cronkite, and then you know find out what happened during the day. Today, when something happens anywhere in the world, in the markets or some event, political event, it is instantaneous. People are either filming it on their cell phones or you're getting updates on your cell phone on a news feed. So that also accelerates this social unrest as well. Right. And that fuels the sixth parallel that we're going to discuss, which is cultural changes, because now you have people in this era of information deluge. I mean, it's just growing exponentially. And of course, there is also a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so people end up gravitating towards their respective echo chambers. And so that leads to obviously a major cultural divide and, and polarization. We saw that again in that 1960s all the way up into the 70s. So where do you see some of the most significant cultural changes paralleling 1970s and today? We take a look at the 60s. It was the challenge to traditional authority, respect for elders and the nuclear family. We had the Vietnam War protest. We had the women's rights movement. We had the environmental movement, the civil rights movement, gay rights, new lifestyle, communal living, drugs. All those things kind of came in as a challenge to existing norms. Today, you've got greater acceptance of diversity. Basically, anything goes today. Open discussion of sex and sexuality. You've got mental health homelessness. You see it in New York. You see it in Chicago. And you see it in a lot of America's major cities. And then you have what we call the wokeness in the cancel culture. The seventh peril that we're looking at is technological innovations. And I think a lot of people may not realize just how strong of a parallel that there is between the 70s and today when we think about technological innovations. But this does relate to even the investment environment that we're facing now. So what are some of the most uh, striking parallels that you see on the technology front? Well, if you go back to the 60s, that was the invention of the integrated circuit, which made for smaller electronic devices. We also had transistors come out during this period of time, which replaced vacuum tubes. And then we had lasers and personal computers and the Apple IIe, which came out in 1977. And I remember that distinctively, Chris, because out of graduate school, I was in corporate finance at a big Fortune 500 company. And back then, before personal computers, when we were doing our budgets and doing our analysis and forecasts, we had these long, long paper spreadsheets where you would have to pencil in the numbers. And I remember when the Apple IIe came out, and I remember going to Computerland, bought my first Apple IIe, and there was a program called VisiCalc, which was uh, the uh, forerunner of the spreadsheets that you have, like today, with Microsoft Excel. And when I learned how to use this, I took my Apple IIe to work, 
and I had a little uh, portable printer back then, and I began to do all of my analysis on spreadsheets instead of writing them on a accounting spreadsheet. And so that was 1977, the personal computer. Look at where we're going today, and this is going to be big. This is something that we're looking into from an investment point of view. As labor laws become harder on companies, as like in California, they just passed a bill that raised the cost of fast food workers, you're going to see robotics accelerate. You're seeing AI. There's a race to control AI. Cloud computing. You look at the Internet of Things. You look at smart homes. I mean, we have a smart home. Everything. I run my home on an iPad or an iPhone. You look at 3D printing. And and we haven't even begun to talk about some of the advances that are going on in in, uh, medical right now, especially with the world's aging population, not just here, Europe, and even China. So, you know, technology is advancing at a faster pace, especially with the invention of the Internet, which, by the way, was invented in the 50s and 60s as a way for the government to communicate in case of a a nuclear war or if our satellites were taken down. And it wasn't until, in fact, Chris, I did a recording, a stock market recording in 1992. One of the guys that used to work for me was very big on the Internet, and we paid somebody out of MIT to program where I could talk into it in a mic, it would record it into a computer. You know, the only people that ever listened to it was probably me and my family. But, you know, he went on to start a software program, and that was the genesis of the Financial Sense News Hour. And our website was his software he developed in the late 90s. So all of this is ex- this knowledge base with artificial intelligence, with the internet, is accelerating the pace of technology. So it's even going to get faster. And uh, so the two big things that we're seeing right now is robotics and AI are going to be the two big things going forward. Here's the eighth parallel that we're going to discuss. And this, I want to say it's a bit of a fun one, but I don't know if that's the exact wording to use. Uh, But that is just the large number of apocalyptic forecasts that we saw in that, you know, late 60s to early 80s period uh, overlapping with the 70s and how we see the same thing today. Yeah, if you go back then, some of the big things that were apocalyptic, you had Danella Meadows' book, Limits to Growth. You had uh, Hell Lindsay, the late great planet Earth. Jesus was coming back. You had, when I was in college, Chris, it was global freezing and a new ice age. That never came true. Then you had the Club of Rome report by Aurelio Pecci. And then you had Paul Ehrlich, the population bomb. The guy predicted more gloom and doom, and not one of them ever came true. Well, fast forward today in 2003, Al Gore forecast in 10 years, if we didn't do something, you know, we were going to see coastal flooding and we were going to see basically the end of Earth as we know it. A couple of years ago, AOC, same thing, 10 years to go and we're done. So you've got climate change, you've got AI conspiracy things that this is going to take over, and then you have pandemics. Look what we just went through in 20 and 21. So you've got a lot more of these kind of apocalyptic things that are coming out. They were coming out very strong. I would say probably the early 70s and late 70s is when you saw a lot of this come out. A lot of these books came out during that period of time. Yeah, and I was a child of the 80s. So I remember watching a lot of movies from the early 80s. 
And I think that this was a carryover from the mindset of the 70s, but so many of the movies in the early 80s were apocalyptic as well. And I remember, you know, there's RoboCop, there was Mad Max. Yeah, the, the one that really stands out to me was the Mad Max series. Yeah, and there was people that believe, I mean, that's what was going to happen. And again, that was inspired in part by what we saw with the 70s supply chain energy crisis, right? That all of a sudden there would be no oil or oil would be have, have to be conserved among just a, a handful of people and people would be fighting over it. So here's one that ties in to a number of different things that we've discussed already. This is the ninth parallel, and this is Cold War. Today, this Cold War, as a number of guests have, have said on our show, and as many others have said, you know, the, the Cold War that's unfolding before our eyes is currently with China. But one thing that I think is really important to point out on this parallel is the Cold War we saw with the Soviet Union was really the U.S. attempting to outspend the Soviet Union on all sorts of different things, not to not to mention uh, our nuclear arsenal, our nuclear capabilities, but massive amounts of spending into defense, into R&D, into all sorts of different things. And obviously, we ended up winning that Cold War because we were able to outspend Russia. Russia ended up collapsing under the strain. But that's what we're seeing today, except now it's with China. It's with China, and there's a new coalition of China, Russia, and Iran that's emerging out of this. And we're stepping up our defense budget. Our defense budget, not, and this is excluding, excluding these supplemental bills like the one that's they're putting forth right now that ties Israel and the Ukraine together. I think it's about like $106 billion. But we're spending $826 billion on defense. And so you think of that. Uh, that's more than the the top 10 countries combined. So we're accelerate we're going to start accelerating that. We're starting a new weapons program development because once again the US is fallen behind on supersonic missiles, but we are developing I told you that submarine that we're going to develop that will be probably the deadliest of our nuclear arsenal. But the Cold War is there. This one is probably going to be fought more on the economic front. We'll get to that when we uh, talk about the next topic. But yeah, once again, another Cold War. Yeah, and I think one of the main points here is that when you think about the trillion dollar deficits that we're seeing here in the U.S. and spending globally, that this is also an aspect of the Cold War environment that we're in because the U.S. is doing everything that it can to prevent a recession, to prevent a lack of our competitiveness. Part of this, again, relates back to what we discussed earlier and reshifting the global supply chain away from China, nearshoring or onshoring, building all sorts of factories and facilities here in the U.S., which we're doing through the Inflation Reduction Act, lots of tax incentives. So this is all part of this Cold War-like environment, again, which we saw in that 70s period. So unless we see a major reversal of fortunes in China and they do collapse, as many people have predicted, including Peter's iron, he's quite a China bear. Unless we see that materialize soon, then they're also going to be spending a large, a large amount of money, not just on their economy, but also on their defense capabilities as they are doing as well. So this is lining up for further spending. And this relates us now to the last parallel that we're going to discuss, and that is monetary regime change. So what did we see during the 1970s and how does that parallel to today? 
Well, the big monetary regime change came in August of 1971 when Nixon cut gold backing of the U.S. dollar. And that really began the beginning of where we are today is the petrodollar. 19, I think it was 73 or 74, we sent our Secretary of Treasury to Saudi Arabia and we signed an agreement with them that they would sell their oil exclusively to the U.S. denominated in dollars in exchange we would provide defense for the kingdom. And that began the beginning. So oil, globally, the most widely used commodity, is denominated in dollars in terms of its sold. So that is what is being unwound now, because the problem with the petrodollar is, as we see what the Fed has done over the last year, the Fed raised interest rates aggressively from 0 to 5%. What did that do? It strengthened the dollar. What also happened? happened, you saw oil prices rise to over $100 a barrel. Well, look at it from the perspective of somebody that's in Europe and South America or elsewhere in the world. You have to buy oil to run your economy, but you have to pay for that oil in dollars. Well, if the dollar is going up and oil prices are going up, that means your currency is going down. You have to have more dollars to buy that oil because your currency buys less when you exchange it for dollars. So what happened is foreigners began dumping their treasury bonds. And that was why last year was probably the worst year that we've seen in 40 years for bond investors. I mean, you lost 20% or more, in fact, up to 25% in treasuries. That same thing happened at the beginning of the year. And then we saw interest rates pull back. And the same thing happened in August and early September, where we had another route in the bond market. And the bond market, you're talking, you know, everybody knows what the VIX is, measures volatility in the stock market. Another index you need to become familiar with, which is the MOVE index, which measures treasury volatility. And anytime that index gets above 140, it uh, got up to 200 in March. What was happening in March? All those banks were going under. It backed up again above 140 in May. It got up there towards the early part of June, and it just crossed 140 again the beginning of October. Anytime you do that. So that's why I think the message from yesterday's Fed meeting was a little bit more softening. Powell saying, well, I think we've raised things enough. Let's just see how this plays out. It takes time for these interest hikes to work its way through the economy. And one of the reasons on the day we're doing this on a Thursday, why you've got the stock market uh, up almost 2% all the way across the board. So a lot of people are saying they're probably done. I think that's going to depend on what happens with inflation. But if they keep doing this, they could lose control over the treasury market as foreigners which own about $18 trillion of U.S. securities, stocks, and treasuries, start dumping treasuries, and they could uh, lose control over the long-term end of the market. So some softening language with the Fed, and now the dollar has backed off. But what is happening right now, the problem that these emerging markets have had is they get their loans in dollars, and what happens is they get their loans from the IMF, they get their loans from the World Bank. The IMF comes in, if we give them a loan, we make them devalue their currency, we make them cut wages, and we sort of impoverish the country. And then we deal with their dictators, we come in, we get their commodities on the cheap, and then um, 
Basically, the country is impoverished. They don't control their own destiny. And that's what these emerging markets are going through right now. That's why you've seen a lot of our technicians on the program saying, hey, the best place to be if you're in the market is being the U.S. market versus emerging markets because this rise in dollar and the rise in oil prices are killing these emerging economies. So what you're seeing now is China is trying to go through de-dollarization with its trading partners, whether it's Brazil, whether it's Saudi Arabia or OPEC. The problem, and a lot of people say, well, this is going to replace the dollar. No, it's not going to replace the dollar. It's still widely used in trade. What China doesn't have, what Russia doesn't have, and what emerging economies don't have, they don't have a large economy and large financial market because the U.S. has perpetually run trade deficits. And so when you accumulate and trade with the U.S., you accumulate excess dollars. What are you going to do with those dollars if you don't need them? You've bought enough stuff from the U.S. Well, you can rechannel those dollars back into the U.S. Treasury market. And that's what foreigners did roughly up until 2014. In 2014, foreigners really stopped buying treasuries. And so we came up with two security laws that made it more advantageous for banks and money market funds to buy treasuries. And so it was the banks that were doing a lot of the funding of the government's deficits. So what China is doing, they don't want an open market. They don't want to have their market open like the U.S. where hedge fund managers, foreign entities can come in, manipulate your currency or your interest rates because of an open market. What China is doing is they are accumulating gold. In the last two years, has been the largest buying of gold by central banks. That's one reason why gold is held up much stronger in an environment where you have a rising dollar and rising interest rates, which is not favorable for gold. But the reason gold has done well is heavy foreign central banking. So what China and the BRIC countries are going to do is you can trade with China in yuan, but if you have excess yuan that you don't need, you can exchange it for gold. So once again, gold is moving into becoming the ultimate currency globally. It's once again resuming its role as a dominant currency, which is held throughout human history. So China is moving its trading partners away from uh, the dollar. The dollar is still going to be there, but it's not as going to be uh, it's not going to be a unipolar world, as Peter Zine has talked about. And that is a monetary regime change, and this is big. And I, we, we just see, you know, the two things that we see they're doing well. You've got Stan Druckenmiller talking about gold and Bitcoin. And because people are looking for a stable currency. How, uh, uh, if you think of a ledger of what you own... You want to know that a dollar is worth a dollar. And this notion that the Fed wants to get down to its notion of a 2% inflation rate. Well, if you think about it, what they're basically saying, we're going to depreciate the currency. And what is that telling you as an owner of dollars? It's telling you that your dollars are going to buy less and less. And I go back to what we started with on inflation. Does anybody really believe the inflation rate is 3.8%? It's probably more than double that right now. And so, yes, you could be in T-bills right now for a parking spot, which we are too, but you're not going to want to stay there because you your money is eroding. If the real inflation rate is running at 7 and 8% and you're getting 5 you're losing ground. The money you have, 
this year is going to buy less goods next year. And that's going to accelerate going forward. But we'll come up new and creative ways to keep the reported inflation levels at much lower than what they actually are. But we're going through this regime change where the dollar is not going to be the only currency used in the world. You're going to see multiple currencies rise up. And more importantly, you're going to see gold resume its traditional role as a currency of settlement of excess reserves. Let's run through the 10 different parallels that we've discussed today since we have covered a lot of information. So the first one is higher inflation. That's obvious to all of us. The second is supply chain disruptions. In the 70s, it was primarily concentrated in the energy sector. Now it's hitting a much wider array, including semiconductors, but also critical rare elements that are necessary for renewable energy. We see geopolitical tensions, very similar to what we saw in the 70s, social unrest and protests, uh, cultural upheaval, war in the Middle East, technological changes, apocalyptic forecasts, which were very much in vogue in the 70s as they are today. And of course, like you discussed, you know, we had people saying that uh, because of climate change, we could be looking at an existential threat or wipeout of the earth within, within as short as you know, 10, 15 years or so. So there's been a, a growing belief in this apocalyptism. Cold War, Soviet Union then, today it's with China. And last but not least, a monetary regime change that is currently underway and we believe is going to be ongoing. And this was something that we touched upon with Mark Faber. I'm going to play a clip of what he had to say when I asked him about a number of these parallels and what he thought about that as well. No period in history is exactly the same as before, but there are similarities to the 70s. The beginning of the 70s, we had a recession in 1970, a very brief recession from where the stock market recovered and made a new high in January 1973. This was the period of the so-called growth stocks or the so-called Nifty 50. These were about 50 stocks, including Kodak, Polaroid, Xerox, and so forth. Stocks that performed fantastically well, whereas the rest of the market didn't do well. So we have parallels already there in the sense that the last episode of the bull market, say, after the COVID crisis of February, March 2020, the rise has been concentrated among very few stocks and not the broad market. And then came the 73-74 bear market. And there, I have to say, the current bear market in stock markets around the world and also in the U.S. reminds me very much of what happened then because we had different waves of inflation and different waves of bond bear market. And in this respect, I have to say that in 1970, when the 10-year treasury was yielding 6%, I can assure you, none of these bearish forecasts ever thought that 10-year uh, treasury notes would yield over 15%. Never. And everybody always thought, oh, the inflation cycle has peaked out, inflation is going to come down, and this and that. And it kept on accelerating, although at uh, irregular pace. So that was what Mark Faber had to say when we discussed some of these parallels between the 1970s and today, focusing a little bit more on the markets and with yields, inflation, 
in particular, as well as he highlighted. So, Jim, what are some of the investment implications when we think about the landscape that we face today and how that parallels a lot of the similar dynamics that we discussed today so far? Well, we're, we're beginning with the assumption, as I did in March of 2020, we're heading for a period of higher inflation. And I think that inflation is going to accelerate, just as Mark commented, as we head into this remainder of this decade. The other thing is we're getting into a period of fiscal dominance. That will dictate what the Fed's going to have to do. And if you take a look at where we are today, twenty, probably closer to 30% of the money in the U.S. budget is spent and we have to borrow to pay for it because basically mandatory spending consumes almost 90, 95% of the budget. So anything that comes after that has to come from borrowed money. And like the 70s, commodities are moving in a new super cycle driven by resource scarcity. And another parallel, Chris, I forgot about this, but on the investment side, and Mark mentioned this, the nifty 50 stocks were the tech stocks coming out of the late 60s up until the bear market of 73. They were the Polaroids, the Kodaks, the IBMs. Well, today you have the Magnificent Seven. And following the 73-74 bear market, which was the one of the toughest ones of the 70s, the Nifty 50 stocks fell and commodities took over the market leadership for the balance of the decade until 1982. I mean, we saw oil go from $2 to $40, gold go from $35 to $800, silver from $1.50 to $50. So the Fed, what you're going to see going forward is the Fed is going to need to exert yield curve control, very much like what Japan, the Bank of Japan has done by buying long-term treasuries. I'm talking 5, 10, and 30-year bonds to suppress yields. We did that after World War II, and uh, we're going to do it again. T-bills, I mean, they're okay short-term right now, but you don't want to stay in T-bills because it's going to be a death by a thousand cuts. This decade is inflation erodes your purchasing power. I mean, just look at this if you're retired today. You're mainly on fixed income. And primarily, retirees have been uh, recommended that they put the majority of their assets in fixed income because you're retired. That's not going to be what you want to do. If you're going to be in fixed income, you better be in individual securities, and they better be shorter term in their duration because inflation is going to rise. So I still like dividend aristocrats. I mean, we've got companies this year, three or four of our stocks have increased their dividends by over 20%. I've got a handful that have increased their dividends by 10%. That's one of the known predictable ways that I know to deal with inflation. Because what do you, what do you need when you're retired? You need to spend money. And when you're spending money, everything that you're spending on is going up. How are you going to cope with that if you don't have increasing income? Do you want to bet that the stock market will go up and you will have to pay for your spending with increased capital gains? I don't think so. So we like dividend aristocrats. I like medical because of aging population and the technology that are coming out. I like technology because I think we're still, uh, some of the stuff we're going to see this decade, you know, God only knows some of the devices that they're coming up with. I like defense, obviously, from what we're seeing globally. And I like oil precious metals, and base metals. It's going to be a commodity-driven decade. And I, I see that coming out of this cycle with the Magnificent Seven, they'll be replaced by commodities. 
Well, Jim, as we close today's show, you know, I want to point out you've typically got about three or four books rotating on your desk that you're reading at all times. And a number of these book authors we obviously speak with on Financial Sense News Hour. What are some of the main books that you would highlight uh, for our listeners today in light of what we discussed? Yeah, I would say in the last couple of weeks, I've read a number of books. Uh, the Fourth Turning is Here with Neil Howe. That'll explain a lot of what you see, the social unrest, the protest, and the cycle we're going through. One I read earlier, The Storm Before the Calm by George Freeman. He's the founder of Stratfor. Uh, another one that I think is really interesting, it's called End Times, Counter Elites and the Path of Political Disintegration by Peter Turchin. And uh, one I just finished, Broken Money by Lynn Alden. Uh, these are, if you want to kind of pick up on some of the things that we're looking at, some of the things that we're going to be talking about, and what you're going to be hearing coming out of this program in the future, these books will give you good insight in terms of where we're heading. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, because when you're talking about those first three books you mentioned, Fourth Turning is Here, The Storm Before the Calm, or End Times, those all deal to some extent with cycles, right? So the fact that we are seeing these repeating patterns over time, and uh, we're right in that period of time. I mean, if we were to focus on Neil Howe's book, The Fourth Turning is Here, uh, that is the period that he would argue and that many would say we're in right now, which does parallel uh, much of what we saw again during the 1970s. So, you know, I, I guess the point here is that it's not just us that are saying this. There's a lot of people that are looking at this that dive deep into cycles and these cyclical patterns. And so these aren't just coincidences. There's an underlying set of trends and currents that allow for these things to arise in such a strange coincidental fashion as they do. So once you understand these underlying dynamics, a lot of these pieces come into play. So hopefully we were able to do that for you today. And of course, to reiterate the longer term message that we've been giving here since 2020 about preparing for a higher than average inflationary environment. And so as we close out today's show, Financial Sense Wealth Management has been listed as one of the top ranked registered investment advisors in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you'd like to get in touch with us to speak with any of our wealth managers, give us a call at 888-486-3939. You can also visit our brand new website, financialsensewealth.com. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Financial Sense News Hour. Until you and I speak again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.